1: All right, guys well welcome back to the equipping you and grace podcast my name is dave and i'm the host for this show and with me today is and i'm not going to butcher hopefully your name although i have been known to do that i did <laughs> last time so i listened to your podcast so so give me some grace if i mess up but elisa, <laughs> i had to with me today elisa childers
0: that's right, you did it! Yeah, I don't have my applause machine, or if I'm in my own podcast studio, I've got the the cheering. Oh, well, I'll applaud
1: for Dave because oh my goodness, yeah. so, I'm always like, no, no, I got their name wrong. Okay, well, anyway, <laughs> now that we have that little fun part gone, uh, welcome to this show, friend. And uh, can you just catch us up on what's been happening in your life, marriage, ministry? It's been I think since October, I looked at this up October of, of 2020. Uh, since we last talked, so you know, tell us about what's happening in your life, marriage, ministry, and yeah, you know, I know you have some another book coming too. So tell yes. us a little bit about that. Yeah,
0: yeah. So October 2020 would have been the month that another gospel came out, my first book. Yeah. So a um, couple years later, now I've got another book coming out on October 18th called "Live Your Truth and Other Lies." And I'm excited for that one. But, you know, generally speaking in marriage life ministry, one really cool thing that's happened family wise is that my husband has been in the music industry for over 30 years, maybe close to 40, I think. Um, But for the last 10 years, he's been a road manager in country music. So he would travel and kind of organize all the hotels and things like that. Uh, But as of December, he has come off the road and is now, he's doing all of my speaking engagement bookings. He's basically managing the podcast now. So when I record an episode... He does all the editing and the, putting the bumpers on. He posts everything. It's, so it's just taken a huge, huge burden off of me. And it's really fun because we're doing this together now, you know, as, as partners. And so that's really fun, really cool. And it's just been so great. And then uh, my kids are going to be 13 and 11 in the next couple of months. And we are venturing into the world of homeschooling next year mm-hmm. for the first time. Mm-hmm. So um now I, I want to be You know, people say, well, how do you do all you're doing and homeschool? When I say we're homeschooling, I don't mean I'm going to be homeschooling them. We're actually hiring someone who is a good friend who is a great educator, Christian woman. So she's going to be homeschooling my kids next year. So it's kind of a hybrid situation. But we're really excited about it because we're going to be getting to do uh, our own curriculum. So we're going to be doing apologetics and some of that fun stuff. So family stuff is going well uh ministry's going well uh this book that is live your truth and other lies is coming out october 18th really excited about it um yeah so that's and and I still have the youtube channel and the podcast and keeping all that stuff going so and working on a third book at the same time so
1: yeah tell us a little bit about that one
0: so that one will come out about a year after the Live Your Truth and Other Lies book. And that is a book I'm co-writing with Tim Barnett from Stand to Reason, also the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel and TikTok and all that stuff. And we are writing a book on deconstruction. So it's mm-hmm. just gonna really be zeroing in on this phenomenon of deconstruction. And our our goal for writing the book is, it's, it's not the book you're gonna give to somebody in deconstruction. It's the book, it's written to the church. This is for people, pastors, parents who are experiencing deconstruction from the outside. In other words, they're not in deconstruction, but they have adult children who are in deconstruction, parishioners who are in deconstruction, even pastors who have other pastors on their staff who are in deconstruction. Mm -hmm. This book is for them to be able to understand the movement of deconstruction and um, how to, you know, interact with it minister to people who might be in it and so that that's kind of uh it's it's a beast though of it's been a very difficult book to write and so it's kind of fun to jump out of that world and talk about live your truth a little bit
1: yeah yeah it's a that's a it's a big issue for sure so thank you for your, your work with tim on that for sure so well, tell us about this new book that you have coming out. That This will come out around the same time as the book releases, but uh, Live Your Truth and Other Lies, Exposing Popular Deception That Makes Us Anxious, Exhausted, and Self-Obsessed. Why you wanted to write it and how you hope it'll be received.
0: Well, so this book was, it came about in a really organic way in that typically people will write a book and then based on the book, they'll write a presentation that they might give to a, you know, at a conference or something. This sort of happened the opposite way. So I had been giving a talk mostly at women's conferences called Pretty Little Lies for a couple of years before I started writing Live Your Truth and Other Lies. And um, it, it was by far my most requested topic to to speak on when I would go speak at women's conferences. And the main reason was because it was interacting with some of the cultural slogans and lies that, you know, we're, we're basically aimed at women. So these were things like you live your truth. You are enough. Um, you, God just wants you to be happy. You're in charge of your own destiny. You know, you're the boss of you, things like that. And a lot of these messages, the reason I think that they were that people wanted me to talk about this is because it was coming from people like Glennon Doyle, Jen Hatmaker, Rachel Hollis, kind of these Christian-ish self-help guru kind of uh, platforms. And so it was very popular talk for me. And I remember just thinking it was time to kind of figure out what I wanted my second book to be about. My agent actually wanted me to write more of an academic systematic book on progressive Christianity because, you know, in reality, another gospel is really it's a theological memoir. So it's really more of my story interacting with progressive Christianity on the way, but it's in no way a systematic takedown of progressive Christianity. He kind of wanted the systematic takedown. I just didn't feel like I could write that. I, I felt like I was really exhausted from having gone through it, (laughs) I just didn't really want to do that. And so I thought, well, what, what if I took this talk and turned it into a book? And that's when just, for me, it was like, that's when everything just sort of locked in and, The the book flowed really well while I was writing it. I had a lot of fun writing it. It's very story driven, but we interact with these lies along the way. We show how they fail logically, but then we go to scripture. And that's why this book was also so fun to write because I got to spend so much time in scripture. Whereas another gospel is more apologetics, you know, looking at history and other things, which is all important, but I, I love the Bible. And I loved that I got to spend so much time in scripture talking about the better story that the Bible has to counteract some of these lies
1: yeah I I really liked this book I actually read parts as I'm reading it when my wife and I were on vacation here recently I read parts of it to my wife and I'm like she's like why are you laughing so much and I'm like oh my gosh yeah let me read this from Lisa's book and she's like oh my gosh that's so funny so you'll, you'll not only laugh but you'll you know you'll you'll be helped by the book and and you, know, you you have a very uh good style. I, my personal writing philosophy is to be biblical, uh personal, practical, and you really exemplify that in your in oh, your writing. So that's Thank uh, you. Yeah, it's awesome. So, good good job. I'm excited for this book. So. Yay. Well, uh, what cultural pitfalls or lies have you observed that that make the message of this book so um timely?
0: I would say the big one is, and that's why we titled it live your truth and other lies is I think the big one is live your truth, especially the younger you get generationally like my kids are both in the Gen Z generation, and it's interesting Dave. um, A couple of, well, I guess it was about two or three days ago, I polled a Facebook group of about 6,000 people in this Facebook group. And I just said, look, if you are a parent or a youth leader, or you have any connection with teens in your life, my big question is, what is the biggest lie that they buy into? And over and over and over and over again, What seemed to be the thing that most adults are having to try to help kids navigate is this idea that your feelings determine truth. Mm. And I think that it's really obvious that in our world, and especially, you know, you look at the younger generation because they're not questioning the premise. This is just the premise that's being given to them from culture. And that's that, you know, basically you just need to dig down into your heart and discover what's in there and then unleash that into the world. Mm. And as Christians, though, we know that that's not a good thing to do because we're sinners. And so, Dave, ultimately, I think what all this comes down to, even where some of this moral relativism, this whole idea that your feelings determine truth when it comes to morality and all these other things, it really comes down to how someone's going to answer one question. And that question is, Are you inherently sinful or are you inherently good? Mm. And that is a question our culture is answering with you're inherently good. And if you think about that, if you are inherently good, then yeah, I can see why you would just want to dig down into your precious little heart, find, you know, the goodness in there and unleash it on the world. But as Christians, we know that we are inherently sinful. That's our nature. The Bible says in Ephesians, we are by nature, children of wrath. Um, which is, by the way, kind of surprising to a lot of Christians when I go and I, I talk about this stuff. I even find myself at times when I'm talking about some the the way scripture de- describes human beings I'll even have to pause and be like are we doing okay like is everybody <laughs> everybody okay because I know this is the opposite message that you're getting from everyone else but if you think you know if you know that you're a sinner then you know that something you you you're not enough for yourself you shouldn't live your truth you should you should repent trust in the god you know trust in Jesus believe the gospel And then this process of sanctification happens, but this idea that we get from the world that you just need to unleash um, it—I think we're seeing a lot of not just, of course, the spiritual ramifications of that, but we're seeing lives being wrecked. And I'll give you a perfect example. One of the books I interact with in *Live Your Truth and Other Lies* is Glennon Doyle's *Untamed*. Um, This was uh, one of the three most popular books of the year—the year it came out, I believe, it's 2020. And in this book, it's basically the whole book is an apologetic for her leaving her husband to marry women's soccer star Abby Wambach. And it's the story of them meeting and, you know, all of that stuff. And in the book, she, she talks about this living your truth. In fact, when she first introduced her audience to Abby Wambach, she said, I want to see every woman live her truth. In fact, she suggested the world would change if we just did that. But in the meantime, she's, you know, left her husband and, and, you know, now the kids are having to adjust to all this new reality. And I personally, just me personally, know of two families where one of the spouses read the book Untamed and then decided to leave their spouse and now their children are paying the bills for it. The, uh, the, their the lives that the, the, just the, the wreckage that's in their path is incalculable. One family in particular that I've walked with very closely and it's just been utterly devastating. And it's all because this book essentially gave one of the spouses permission to Live their truth, follow their their passion, and they can't understand why everybody else doesn't just get on board and be happy for them when mm. they've blown up their entire lives. So it's there's very you know strong spiritual ramifications to these lies, but even just in the practical world of how it plays out on children and on families, these lies are devastating.
1: Mm. Wow, as you're as you're talking, I'm just thinking. Some people, even today, as we both know, they think doctrine doesn't really matter. And yeah. what you just, just demonstrate is that, and I hope people pick up on it, is that doctrine really does matter and it impacts how you're going to be a disciple of Christ.
0: That's exactly right. It does matter. And you know what? It, it, this is the thing that just... Puzzles me when, uh, in fact, just today, Dave, I was doing some research for the deconstruction book and I was on a popular deconstruction site where they have a podcast and they have hangout rooms online. And um, they have an event coming up where there's like, we're going to gather everybody around for community, but we're not going to gather around, there'll be no dogma, there'll be no ideology. And Obviously, just from a logical standpoint, that's self-refuting, because to say we're going to gather around no ideology is an ideology. The ideology is that we're going to gather around, you know, not have dogma. It's not going to work. It's not going to work because there is dogma. And that's the thing is when you remove good doctrine, it, you don't just exist in a vacuum. You replace it with something else. Everybody does always. Even if you say, you know, well, I am i don't have any dogma. I'm going to get rid of doctrine that's your new dogma. So the, the, I think what we should do as Christians is think through what we believe and think through it carefully and biblically. And I mean, it's, it's not just good for us spiritually, but it's going to make our lives better um, because we'll be connected with our maker and that's our purpose. Right. And that's what we'd kind of talk about in the book is that The world has this really wonky idea of what your purpose is. And the world would just tell you, you know, your purpose in life is just to be happy. But as we know from, you know, Christianity, this world, this, this life, this isn't the main event. And so we have such a greater hope and it's a better answer.
1: Mm. Lisa Chillers with the fire bombs and the
0: fire. (laughs) I wish
1: we could put that on the screen.
0: Yeah, like you know, the yeah, that.
1: yeah, the little light like, <laughs> bulb. Man, that's good. That's good. What are what are some of the popular deceptions that make us anxious, exhausted, and self obsessed? And what do you, what's your advice about them?
0: Mm. Well, it's interesting. I think they kind of build on each other, kind of like bricks. You know, if you start with this idea that you're enough, right? It's kind of where it starts. Like just. You're enough. There's nothing you need outside of yourself to make yourself whole or complete or fix you. You know, everything you have in, is already inside of you. Uh, but as uh, Ali Bestucki, I quote her in my book because she has a book called, You're uh, You're Not Enough and That's Okay. And she made such a great point in this book. She said, the self can't both be the problem and the solution. You know, if you broke you, you can't fix you. You, you need something outside of yourself. And so I think that that's a big one is the lie that you are enough because not only is it not true, but when you tell somebody they're enough, what you're essentially telling them is you have to fix all your own problems. You know, whatever's wrong with you, you have to fix it because you're enough for yourself. And it's a very damaging message, both spiritually and in a practical sense, because like Ali Beth pointed out, the self can't fix what the self broke. And so we do need something outside of ourselves, and it all comes down to purpose. You know, I think as I just mentioned a few minutes ago, if people really grasp that our purpose as human beings is to worship God and be in His presence forever, to love Him, and you know, however you want to word that, and but yet we know we're alienated from Him through sin. A lot of people stop there and they say, "Well, that sounds really negative. That sounds really bad. Um, you're telling people they're bad." Well, actually, let's, let's take a a swing out a little bit and take a a better look at this. The reason we are alienated from God because of our sin is because God is holy. And we actually want a God that's holy because a God that is holy is perfect. He's, he's moral perfection itself. He's, you know, all these people in streets crying out for justice. It means he's justice. He is justice itself. And we want that, right? Don't you want a God that is perfectly good and just and holy, but his holiness means that he can have no unity with sin. Mm -hmm. So that does cause an alienation. But that's why the cross and God's great redemption plan is so beautiful, but it's not going to be beautiful to people who think they're inherently good. And that's why I kind of framed it the way I did at the beginning. It's really how you're going to answer that one question. Do you think you're inherently good or you're inherently evil and sinful and that you need to be fixed. And so all of these lies sort of build on, on uh, top of that idea, but let, let me give you a couple from the book. So there's one, um, there's a whole chapter called God just wants you to be happy. That's the lie, right? Because in 2005, uh, you're probably aware of the, of this, they they did some studies on American teenagers where they pulled them to find out what their spiritual beliefs were. And they discovered that the average American teenager believed that God you know he's not going to be that involved in your life he's not going to tell you what you know what to do with your sex life or anything like that but if you need something he'll be there for you Um, he wants you to be nice and good to each other and he wants you to be happy that's his mission for your life is just that you you be happy and so they they coined the phrase therapeutic moralistic deism And I think that this has really caught on beyond, I mean, those teens now are adults, right? So this is, I think the dominant spiritual view in our culture is that God's like this big giant therapist in the sky that if you're happy, he's happy and he'll leave you alone. As long as you feel happy. Mm. Um, That's not the way it works. That's not at all. God's plan for your life. In fact, the Bible talks about suffering being something that's valuable. And so in the chapter, I tell the story of uh my friend Medine Keener, who's the wife of Bible scholar Craig Keener, and how she lived in uh Congo as a refugee for 18 months. And she tells a harrowing tale of uh you know being bitten by ants and um, having to eat rats for protein and, and just foraging through the jungle, and it's it was an awful, horrible time, but the spiritual uh, deepening of her faith was so powerful in the midst of that. And that's the conundrum that we don't probably understand in the natural. But when Jesus calls us, He's not saying, find yourself. He says, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. He said, the world's going to hate you because, and he says they hated him because he convicted the world of their sin. I think Mm -hmm. we see all that. All of that is true. When Christians are hated, it's not because they think we're goody two shoes who have some weird ideas. People hate us because Christianity convicts them of their sin. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really what it comes down to. So the God just wants you to be happy is a big one. Um, There's, there's another one called you only have one life, you know, YOLO, the YOLO hashtag, you only live once. And the whole idea of that is that, you know, you just get this one, this one shot on this earth. So do whatever you have to do to be happy. And if you have to, even if you have to kind of step on other people to be happy, that's fine. In fact, a perfect example of this is uh, Rachel Hollis, who uh, built an entire brand with relationship conferences with her husband, uh, charging people quite a bit of money to come to these conferences. And then just out of nowhere, what seemed to be out of nowhere, one day she and her husband announced their divorce. And within two weeks, she has a book coming out about her divorce. And in the book, uh, she references a quote she made in the book, Girl, Wash Your Face. And Girl, Wash Your Face, she said, you are meant to be the hero of your own story. In the book she wrote on her divorce, she said, if I have to be the villain in someone else's story, uh, to be the hero of my own, then I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me, but basically she was saying, that's a good thing. If I, it's okay. I'm okay with that. If I have to be the villain in someone else's story. Mm -hmm. So it's a very self-obsessed, obsessed, obsessed, self-focused approach to life that, um, is ultimately not just sinful and evil, but like I keep mentioning, it's not going to give you a fulfilled life here on earth either.
1: Yeah. Yeah. As you're, as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, for people that are listening, what you're saying is, and it's so relevant. I see it over and over again. It just keeps getting worse. It's it's the idea I can do whatever I want to do. And that I'm the captain of my fate. I'm the master of my own ship. I'm the commander and you know, and um, just go and read the Bible. Read, start reading Genesis, and it starts with God, and then it gets yeah. to us, and then it gets like you're saying to our sin, and then yeah. go read the rest of the story, and then see how the how that story ends with, you know, and culminates. It finds its find this apex and goal in Christ, and it doesn't start with us, so it's not about us, you know. Yeah. and and that's the really the issue with the the relativistic. Uh, self autonomy, feel good, and ha- pat yourself on the back and rub your belly, and your head—kind of approach to life. Uh, it's and it's tragic. There's so many people today that are unfortunately going in that direction, but on the other side of it, there's so many people that are coming out of that too, and they're seeing how empty that is. And uh, if you if you really want to wonder what what does the Bible have to say about that, go read Ecclesiastes. Mm-hmm. It'll, it'll give you a really good reality check, almost like if you ever watch NCIS, it'll smack you upside the head, <laughs> give you that gib slap upside the head it's because it's just a realistic outlook on life. But, yeah. Yeah, what you're saying is so good. So but uh, where do these uh, common lies originate and who propagates the narrative? Mm.
0: Well, you know, how far back in history you want to go, I think would be a good question. Like, um, where do these, uh, ultimately, Dave, I think it goes back to the serpent's question to Eve, did God really say? Mm -hmm. Um, Now, interestingly, we have a new twist on that question. And it's sort of similar to the way that the serpent approached Jesus in the wilderness, uh, in the temptation of Christ, when... You know, with, when the serpent tempted Eve, he was questioning what God had said. You know, God, God uh, had said, you can eat freely of all trees except this one. And the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. And the serpent said, yeah, did God really say that? You know, he's kind of questioning the actual words. But I think with the relativistic approach to truth that we have, On the heels of postmodernism, which is really like the whole live your truth kind of, I'll live my truth, you live your truth, and we're going to, we're just going to, you know, try to coexist together. There's a new spin on that question. Now, when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, the serpent quotes scripture to Jesus, but he actually quotes the accurate words. He quotes Psalm 91, and he's quoting the words, but he's trying to twist the interpretation, and I think that's the new tactic we're seeing even today in our culture with postmodernism is this whole idea of like, well, that's just your interpretation. You can interpret the scripture any way you want. And, you know, one of the things um, that I've noticed that I'll, that is very shocking to people when I'll go and speak is I'll, I'll look at a crowd and I'll say, did you know that there's only one correct interpretation of every passage of scripture? And they're looking at me like, well, wait, what? Even Christians, they're like, what? and and you're like yeah there's one god intended to communicate something and we want to figure out what it is now you know obviously there's things christians disagree with each other about because we're in a perfect world, we're trying to understand what the correct interpretation is. And that should be our goal. So if we end up disagreeing with each other, maybe on something that's not a core essential of the gospel, then we can have grace for each other, knowing that we're both trying to understand what was being communicated. Um, But this whole idea of, oh, you can just pick an interpretation you like and go with that. Like, that's not right. We can't do that. Our goal should be to try to understand what's being communicated. But in this relativistic postmodern culture, which really comes down to the deconstruction of words, right? This goes all the way back to Jacques Derrida in the 60s, who didn't believe words could be pinned down to singular meanings. So for Derrida, the the intent of the author had no more impact on the meaning than the hearers or the readers interpretation. So that's the, the height of just like, you know, just pick an interpretation you like, because it doesn't, there's no fixed meaning of the words. And I think that's how people are approaching the Bible today. And I think it's a very dangerous, of course, way to approach the Bible. Um, But, but I think that we see that sort of tactic, in today's culture, I mean, people are still, you know, it's still the age old question. Did God really say? I think that's where this all started, but it, we see it morphing. And I think it's its really gained steam through the, through the rise of postmodernism where people are sort of operating under the premise that there is no fixed truth. I mean, think about, I've done this thought experiment. Think about, and ask your listeners even to, to think about this too. If you don't believe that truth exists or at least can be known in the realm of morality and religion okay if you don't believe it can be known then you're going to be suspicious of anyone who comes along saying here's what the truth is about god here's what moral truth is and i think that's also why we've seen a proliferation of critical theory where people see every truth claim as a power grab because they ultimately don't believe truth exists and can be known. So I think where this is all coming from is an attack on the nature of truth. Mm. And like I said, you can trace that back to the garden, but I, I think it really started gaining steam when postmodernism hit the scene. It's
1: mm. really good. Yeah, it makes me think of, um, you know, a gymnast. And they tumble around and they go and they do their thing or whatever, and whatever they do, don't ask me to explain describe it, but it just makes me think <laughs> of like a gymnast because, I mean, it's like you come to the Bible and it's like you come to the Bible for what reason? You know, uh, you come to the Bible mm-hmm. to prove your presupposition that it isn't true instead of coming to the Bible the opposite way to to learn and discover who God is, which is mm-hmm. what the Bible is there for. And so yeah. you're always going when you start with the wrong idea, like you're saying, you're always going to get the wrong answer every every single time because it's like if you come to homer's iliad or any other book with the idea that okay i have an idea of what this is and then you don't read it to find out what it really is about you're never going to discover the the meaning of the story yeah so that's that's why i think it's like a gymnast tumbling around it's like you're fighting with the, the very nature of the thing and and that's not that's not what i what i often tell people that's not intellectually honest you're not being yeah. you say that you say that you're being intellectual but actually you're doing the opposite of being intellectual because an intellectual would come and then try to find the evidence and the point of the thing and try to discover its meaning instead you're coming with the idea that it's not true and it doesn't mean what it means and that's not yeah. that's never acceptable in any any I spent 12 years in school and you know um i would still be in school if i could but my wife's like no so but i mean just said from a purely academic perspective like you can't do that approach in academia and yet mm-hmm. the very people that are are often the ones that are most guilty of it are the ones in academia
0: mm, that's true
1: yeah. davis now dave light up the emoji the fire emoji so <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there you go <laughs> you uh you say that being the captain of your own destiny and striving to make our, our dreams come true is a, it's a burden that we are never meant to bear. Can you unpack that for us?
0: Yeah, I think it's similar to the lie, you are enough where the burden up puts on people. Because if you tell somebody you're in control of your own destiny, right? Um, I'll take an example here from Rachel Hollis's book, Girl, Wash Your Face. In the book, she talks about making, you know, setting goals and making your dreams, which for her you know, it was putting a picture of Beyonce and a big mansion that she wanted to buy in a yacht or something. I that's I can't remember the exact things, but it was things like that. Like that was the goal she had. Um, we don't always know what's best for us, right? Like we, this whole idea that you're in control of your own destiny, it puts so much burden on you to decide what. Is your, you know, what, it, what is, what are you going to do with your life? Right. I had lots of ideas of what I was going to do with my life before I really surrendered that to the Lord, honestly. And none of those things have been what I'm doing with my life now. And I'm more fulfilled doing what the Lord had for me than anything I could have dreamed for myself. So it's this whole idea that you have to kind of create what your reality is going to be. And then you have to make it happen. And in the book, she even talks about, you know, if the door closes, kick it open If it closes again or they board it up, find a window, open the window, climb out the window, just whatever you have to do to make your dreams happen. But, you know, this is so unrealistic because I think all of us have seen enough American Idol episodes to know That this is not the good advice to give to everybody because in every episode of American Idol, you have someone who everybody in their small town told them they're the greatest singer they've ever heard. Their confidence level is through the roof. They get in front of these judges and they're terrible. Mm -hmm. And the judges are being honest with them saying, you don't have a talent for this. You need to give up on this dream. And then, you know, in the earlier episodes, you'd see people just storming off and offended. And I'm just going to find a door to kick down. And I'm going to keep trying to chase my dream and make it happen. I mean, the person is likely going to waste their life on a dream that's never going to become a reality. And I think that all of that striving, all of that hustle uh, leads people to exhaustion. That's why that word exhausted is in the, the subtitle of the book. Um, All of that stuff, it just makes us exhausted because we might have the wrong dream that we're chasing. Mm. Here's a great example. I know a guy who is a high school janitor, loves apologetics, loves theology. He loves that he gets to talk to students every day about the Lord because he's a janitor at their high school. Now imagine. If he would have said, oh, no, I'm going to become a big CEO with a yacht and all these things. And then he lost the opportunity to minister to all those young people and literally help shape their lives of the next and up and coming generation because he doesn't want to clean toilets or something. I mean, that's what the Lord had for him. And he has a glad heart about it and just, you know, lives for the Lord in that situation that he has. I think that's such a better way to look at it is rather than trying to make some big thing happen, glorify God wherever you are. Um, My friend TC wrote a book, Lord, Where's My Calling? Where she talks about this, like everybody has the same calling essentially. And that's to glorify God wherever you are. Sometimes he'll put you in a palace, sometimes he'll put you in a hut, but you're gonna glorify him wherever you are. And it frees you from this bondage to try to make something happen for yourself that might not even be something that God has for you in the first place.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's really, really good really 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 important um you know I have a lot of friends who are pastors and um, and, and not a pastor but I've applied to a lot of pastor positions and this is you're talking I'm thinking about that because you know I was guilty until like about maybe four years ago of just being so dissatisfied with where I was at and then I re- needed to remind myself uh, what I'm doing is a privilege and mm. I'm still serving the Lord, even though I'm not a pastor, and so I had to repent of that idolatry, mm. and just being happy where you're at in Christ, and being content in him is so freeing. Um, yeah. it's, it's the joy and the privilege that we have, irrespective of whatever ministry we have. It's, it's a privilege that we are in union with Christ. We belong to Christ. We are his. And yeah. He is ours, and we get to enjoy him, and then out of that, we can serve him. Are you kidding me? Just think about that. Let, let that yeah. like hit you and soak in that for a bit. And I did. <laughs> and uh, it was uh, really freeing. So just, just to take that in a little bit practical even more practical, like what you're saying is just, it's really, really, really important. So
0: yeah.
1: Well, you talk about objective truth. How do we get this truth?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, honestly, I think that defining The nature of truth right now is one of the most important things we can do, especially for the younger generation who, like I mentioned before, are being taught that truth is determined by their personal feelings. We have got to get back to the nature of objective truth, and I think a simple way to explain that would be that Anytime someone says something is true, that's called a truth claim. So if they say, you know, the sky is blue or trees have leaves or whatever, whatever statement anyone's making, that's a claim to truth. That's a truth claim. And some truth claims are in the subjective realm, meaning they depend on the subject. So in the book, I talk about, you know, what's the best dessert and is it ice cream or is it cake with ice cream? Is it pie? Is it brownies? Is it cookies? And if you really start to think about that, well, is there an objective standard for what is the best dessert? Well, there's not, because the claim, let's say, you know, brownies are the best dessert is a subjective truth claim because it's based on me, the subject. There's nothing outside of me that can determine the truth of that. So that's not in the realm of objective truth. It's a subjective truth claim. Um, you still can't get away from objective truth, which is based in the object, which is outside of me, because it's still objectively true for you, Dave, and for everyone else that I think cake and ice cream is the best dessert. Um, that's objectively true for everyone that that's my opinion, but that's what it is. It's an opinion. So when we talk about objective truth, it's something that's outside the subject and where our culture, I think has made a misstep is that even though, I mean, you can Google articles two plus two equals five and you can find a whole lot of people right now saying that two plus two equals five, no joke. But most people live as if objective truth exists, as if truth is a fixed thing in reality. Most people go to the bank, they expect their money to be there. They expect to take medicine the doctor gives them, it's gonna help their disease or whatever. Mm -hmm. But what our culture has done is relegate things like religion and morality to the subjective category. So our culture is saying, yeah, you know, if you have diabetes, you take your insulin, that's an objective thing in reality. But when it comes to your religion or what you think is right and wrong, that's really more of the ice cream question. That just depends on you. That's relative to you, the subject, that's that's an opinion. And so I think that's the biggest battle we have is to show people that actually religion and morality that's in the objective category. and the reason is because God exists or He doesn't. Mm. Jesus was raised from the dead or He wasn't. The Bible is God's Word or it isn't. And it we don't you know it doesn't matter what we believe about those things. They're fixed objective truths in reality. and that's why religion and morality can't be relegated to the subjective, you know, dessert category because they're realities outside of you. And so someone can disbelieve that God exists and that Christianity is true. It doesn't change the truth of it. And so Chris, the reason this is so important for Christians is because even Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith's in vain and you're still in your sins. Like we have a resurrection that if it didn't happen as an objective reality, then it means Christianity is false. And if Christianity is true and Jesus did come out of the tomb He claimed to be the only way to God and Christianity by nature is exclusive, which excludes other ways to God. In other words, it excludes other religions. So I don't know if a lot of Christians think that through all the way when they say, well, you know, I'm a Christian, but you can be whatever you can, you can be. And, and, you know, that's okay for you. And this is going to be good for me, but if it is objectively true and your friend is, has the potential of living in eternity apart from the goodness and love of God, then we should be evangelistic. We should be saying, look, I want you to believe the truth. But I think sadly, a lot of Christians have bought into this idea that what we believe about God and what we believe about morality is more of a, just an opinion.
1: Hmm. That's that's so good. Yeah, ask yourself, w- not only what, what are the claims of what I believe, but are they, are they true? And then if they're, since they're true, how, how is that going to impact my life? And you can yeah. even do this with, you can even do this with Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or, you know, and I do, I, I say, prove that claim, prove it, prove what's your, what's your source? What's the source of your claim? Cause it, cause in, cause in a classroom, you have to prove that when you write a paper, you have to prove your position. You have to use sources. You have to, you know, mm-hmm. so if you're going to make a claim, then you have to prove it. Um, and We have the claims that in the Bible, the Bible makes claims on us, and it tells us who and what we are, and then Mm -hmm. what Christ has done. And so, do we believe? Since we're Christians, we, like you said, we we are to believe those claims. But it even applies as we're talking with people. Prove your claim. Tell me, tell me what your source is for rejecting this. Tell me why you're rejecting it. And they can't. They can't. They'll they'll end up walking away or balking at it and or they'll if they're honest that's, that's why I said what I did earlier if they're honest then they'll admit I don't know
0: hmm.
1: and that provides an opportunity then to tell them the truth
0: hmm.
1: and that's a, it might sound it might sound defeating I'm not trying to defeat somebody when I do that I'm just trying to show them hey what you're actually saying this is this is the mirror and this is what you're saying it doesn't make any sense. Do you do you see the mirror? Can you look at the mirror? Yeah. And well, then- and
0: that's honestly, Dave, I think this is what a lot of Christians face on social media. And this is why, you know, Greg Kokel's book, Tactics, is so important, because what a lot of Christians forget is that if somebody comes up to you and they say, hey, the Bible's been corrupted, they're the ones who have made a truth claim. You haven't made a truth claim. You don't have to defend that. What they have to do is actually, the burden of proof is on them. They have to claim, they have to justify making the claim. The Bible has been corrupted. So that's why we ask, well, how did you come to that conclusion? What's your evidence? What's your source on that? Because they're the ones that are making a truth claim. But but so often Christians miss that. And then they start, well, no, it's not. And they get all this. Stuff, hey, you haven't said a thing. They're the ones making the claim. Make them show you the evidence for their claim.
1: That's so good. So good. What disciplines or practices do you recommend for staying grounded in our cultural movement?
0: Well, it's the Bible. I mean, there's just no other answer than the Bible. It's uh, Sadly, I think a lot of Christians are biblically illiterate. Uh, A lot of Christians have read bits and pieces of the Bible. A lot of Christians have read articles about bits and pieces of the Bible but they haven't read the Bible for themselves. I was just having lunch the other day or coffee the other day with uh, someone who's real open, uh, kind of confused about what they believe. They they wanted to talk to me. I, I met with them and had some coffee. And I it, there, there was so much waffling back and forth. Well, this person says this. And then I listened to this podcast and it said this, but you say this, but then other people say this. I finally asked them, I said, have you read the Bible? Mm. And they were like, no, I haven't. So once you start there, you know, yeah. Yeah. read the whole thing, take a year, turn all these, turn me off, turn all the voices off, read the Bible. And I think that I have known people who were atheists and they read the entire Bible without the influence of people saying everything about the Bible. They became Christians after reading the Bible. They understood it. And I think that's the number one way to combat this. There is no way I could be standing strong if I wasn't in the word every day. It it is, it is really like the book of Hebrews talks about it being a double-edged sword. It really is. It's living and active. It is. It doesn't matter even what part of it you're reading. I mean, it matters, but I mean, getting any of the word of God in you will change you. Mm. And it will divide joints from marrow it does it it does the, it does it is living and active um one of the practices that i do dave um every night uh i i will admit to you that i am not always very disciplined to wake up first thing in the morning and do my my bible study i really work on that i try to do that every day i don't always succeed at doing that every day Um, So sometimes I will listen to a good sermon from a solid Bible teacher. Um, If I'm, you know, if I've got so much to do, I'll I'll put maybe put a sermon on first. I'd rather be in the word myself. But one thing I do just about every night without fail is memorize scripture as I fall asleep. And I will pick a passage right now. It's first Peter one, and I will just keep adding to it as I fall asleep and, and keep memorizing every single night. Um, that's a practice that has been incredibly fruitful for me in my life. And then those scriptures will come back up into my memory when I need them. Um, so that would be one thing. But also I think people, I think people have this tendency to think it's all or nothing. Like either I'm going to wake up every day and study the Bible for an hour or it's nothing. Um, even if it's just a little bit, even if if you can just read a few Proverbs or just get to start getting it in you and um, the Lord will use it.
1: Yeah. What you're saying is so good because it doesn't matter. Hey, if you get up and you read the Bible, if you do it at lunch, if you do it at the end of the day, the point is that is to do it a little bit, five, 10 minutes a day, whether you're even, I would even just say, be encouraged that you're even memorizing scripture you know, you're you're still taking, you still have to read it and you still are reciting it to yourself as you're doing that. So that's really good. Well, you know, I know uh, we just talked, you talked about social media just a minute ago, and I know you have some advice about social media. What lessons or lessons do you most hope to share?
0: Social media. In the book, I talk about social media being sort of like the Tower of Babel. And this was actually not my idea. My agent came up with this idea and he's like, you got to put it in your book. It's like, it's like the Tower of Babel. So I spell it B-A-B-B-L-E in my book. It's the Tower of Babel. And we find ourselves in a similar situation that they found themselves at the Tower of Babel. Well, the whole world had one language. Well, the whole world kind of has one language again because of social media. And so social media can be the best and worst place on the planet because of this you have a proliferation of every kind of idea and I think what I've seen that's caused a lot of young people to take on the idea that they shouldn't ever land on what they think about something because there's always some another perspective to explore and so I think that's one of the pitfalls of social media is it's sort of created this culture of agnosticism and so uh, I would say if you if somebody senses that happening it's okay to shut it off. Uh, I will tell you 100%, honestly, the only reason that I am on Facebook, um, I'm kind of on TikTok. I put a few videos up, but I haven't been on there in a long time because I don't like TikTok at all. Um, The only reason I'm on these platforms, I'm off Twitter. I got off Twitter. Um, The only reason I'm on these platforms is to try to shine some light. Um, But if I didn't have a public ministry like this, I would not have I might have an Instagram page just to keep connected with the friends, but I would not have a social media thing um, because I do think the potential for, well, first of all, it's just, it can be such a waste of time. And it can cause us to value people's opinions more than we should. And it can cause us to take what people say as truth because they're simply, because they're really confident. You know, this is a known sociological uh, phenomenon where the more confident somebody is in saying something, the more likely people are to believe that what they're saying is true. And so people have really lost the ability to think critically. So I would say be very discerning with social media. It's okay to walk away from it. You don't need it in your life. And, um So I I would just say that, just be really discerning as a Christian with Mm -hmm. social media.
1: That's really, really good. Good word. I agree. Well, where can people go to find out more about you? You know, tell us about your podcast, of course, and uh, those things.
0: Well, thank you. So YouTube and Instagram and Facebook at Alisa Childers, I have, uh, like you mentioned, a YouTube channel. It's super creative name. The Alisa Childers podcast is my podcast. Um, But, uh, you know, generally I try to have conversation. I interview guests who have expertise in certain areas that relate with. Uh, the worlds of deconstruction and progressive Christianity, and so so my my thesis my mission statement for my podcast is equipping Christians to identify the core beliefs of historic Christianity, discern its counterfeits, and proclaim the gospel with kindness, clarity, and truth. And so that's where I try to I try to keep everything in that zone. But it's fun. So check it out, the Elisa Childers podcast. You can also go to elisachilders.com for information. I should I should mention also. That That coming up, uh, I'm not sure when this is going to air, but on September 20th, there's a curriculum coming out for another gospel. So I was joined by John McRae and Jay Werner Wallace in a coffee shop we rented out for three days and did a video curriculum and a participant's guide to equip churches to recognize the claims of progressive Christianity and and walk through those in a small group setting. So you can go to Tyndale.com. There's also a link on my website for that. But that's coming up soon. So lots of good stuff going on. So, Yeah. yeah.
1: That's great. Yeah, this will go up right around when your book goes up, so October. So I encourage our listeners. That'll to be out of it. anything, yeah. Yeah, and uh, we, I know that many of you guys already listened to Elisa's podcast, so keep keep listening and enjoying. I do. I don't listen to every episode, but I I enjoy some of them. Uh, well, I enjoy the ones that I listen to. I'll say it that way. So <laughs> yeah, so thank you for that. Well, you know, just as we wrap up, I always say, you know, there's a lot that we could talk about. We really only have scratched the surface. So just as we wrap up, do you want to give us a a few takeaways?
0: Yes. So let's see takeaways. I think that if I could leave everybody with just a couple of things to keep in mind, it would be number one, it can be overwhelming to hear a lot of the, of this information, right? Because people are busy. I mean, people have full-time jobs, we're moms, we're there's so much going on in everybody's life. And I know I remember that feeling of just feeling totally overwhelmed. Like where do I even start? And so what I would encourage everyone to do is, is, you know, read your Bible, stay consistent in that. You actually don't have to study all the false gospels in order to know the real one. Just know the real one and know why you believe it's the real one. Mm -hmm. And then you'll be able to spot counterfeits when they come along the way. You'll be able to easily spot some of these lies that I write about in my book. Uh, But with that said, if you have friends in your life who are really into Glennon Doyle, really into Jen Hatmaker or Rachel Hollis, the book will probably be helpful for you to be able to interact with them, uh, to be able to shine some light on some things. And as Dave mentioned, it's, it's a light read. It's, there's a lot of humor in it, lots of story. Uh, I wrote it that way on purpose, so it wouldn't be too overwhelming. But my advice would be, you know, read your Bible. That's primary. Don't get overwhelmed with other things. And then if you have a question, investigate each question as you go. And, um, don't feel like you have to drink the whole swimming pool, just one glass at a time. And and the Lord will lead you too. the Holy Spirit will lead you to the questions that you're going to need to know because someone's going to ask you. And uh, so, yeah, and, and don't live your truth, you know, know that you're a sinner. And even though it starts, you know, with the bad news, the, that's why the gospel is good news, because it's the cure for all of it. And it's a much better story.
1: It's mm, really good. Well, guys, we've been talking today with my sister and friend, Lisa Childers, about her book, Live Your Truth and Other Lies, Exposing Popular Deceptions That Make Us Anxious, Exhausted and Self-Obsessed. You'll enjoy reading it. I encourage you to pick it up and then get it for a friend. So thank you so much for joining us.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. And everybody get Dave's book, too. It's wonderful. I read it, endorsed it wholeheartedly. So pick that one up also.
1: Thank you, sister.